There is some time now for questions and answers and uh, I hope you all saw the notice to that effect so you're not surprised to discover that's what's happening. But if you are, it's always a good opportunity for practice when things aren't quite what we expected. And uh, I'm always hesitant to name something questions and answers because uh, it's not necessarily what happens. It's more like questions and then responses. And uh, in fact, talking with Catherine a day or two ago, we think, well, maybe we should ask the questions and you give us the answers. That would be easier. Of course, it can work that way too. But uh, a number of you have uh, given me some questions that are written down. Thank you. And I will uh, endeavour to answer and I'll certainly respond to them. I just want to get a sense, without feeling you have to commit yourself in this moment to asking a question, are there others who have a question they might want to ask? I just got some sense of the time that might be involved. If you all put your hands up, it's one thing, and if nobody does, it's another. And both are fine, or anything in between. Is anyone, there's, okay, at least one. Or well, maybe it was two questions out there, we'll see. There may be more come from what uh, I speak about. And just in beginning, I also want to name, really in the hopefully simplest way I can, that some of you will be aware that one or two members of the retreat who've been here with you over some of the days here uh, are no longer here. And in, in a couple of occasions, as sometimes happens, someone gets into a difficult place in the journey of practice where it becomes wise and appropriate for them to no longer continue the retreat. And um, it it's, sometimes happens in a quite a sort of a, a gentle manner and sometimes in a less gentle manner that they find themselves in a difficult place and I just want you to know and be reassured that where that does take, where that does occur, the people are really well taken care of through the support that's here and also elsewhere and uh, we uh, stay in touch with them and uh, yeah, there's nothing to be concerned about um, on your part. So some questions. We start with the easy ones, I find, is a good idea. Hopefully one doesn't actually get as far as the difficult ones. Um, we'll see. Could you say some? I'm going to read them. I won't see the name, so don't worry. Could you say something, please, about the use of mantra or set phrases? Not mentioned very often. So, um, mantra is one thing. Set phrases might be another. But if you're meaning that to be the same thing, I don't actually know exactly who this person is. Or maybe I do, and have forgotten your name. Apologies if that's the case. Um, with, with the use of mantra, we don't talk about it so often here because it's probably not a form that amongst the teachers we're using and teaching that, that much, if at all. Um, and it's certainly very well established and familiar within meditative traditions, the use of a phrase or a, um, a sound or a syllable even to centre and focus the mind. And that's where it's primarily used. And here, to distinguish that between the way we might use phrases in loving-kindness meditation as a sort of a, a verbalising and articulating of an intention and an expression of well-wishing, mantra is essentially something that serves the calming, the steadying and the stilling of the mind. And it can be quite useful, 
because it gives the intellectual function, the sort of the, the language, the verbal activity of the mind, it gives it something to engage with that actually supports it in steadying and calming and simplifying. And so in that way it's used in many traditions, including um, you know, Buddhist and Theravada Buddhist contexts, um, so traditions similar to where these practices and teachings come from, as a way of doing that. And um, you know, one, of the, one of the classic mantras you find in Thailand is just saying the word Buddha, 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 Buddha. And just kind of settling into that simple sound as a, as a way of gathering the mind, as a way of settling, and also bringing the heart into contact with, in this case, Buddha, as it refers to wakefulness, or the one who is awake. And so there's some orienting towards that as well. The interesting thing with mantra is that it can be an effective way of calming and stilling the mind, perhaps more quickly than some other forms. So it seems attractive and might even seem advantageous. But for myself, why I don't particularly use it or um, teach it, even though you know I don't say it's a bad thing, is what I notice is that it engages the mind more easily. So the mind is less likely to be wandering or distracted, that's true. But it does so because it's a somewhat more significantly... The word I would use is gross. Now, I don't mean that negative, but sort of like coarse... It's a more strong um, impact, to both because there's the need to, co to create the word, to say it, requires an intentionality, even though that can become trained to be sort of not requiring much energy over time. But it somehow, it's like it's easier to connect with, and precisely because that, than for instance the breath or some more subtle experience, precisely because it is easier to connect with, one can be less distracted more quickly, but also the mind is not required to become more subtle and to be more, um, to develop more deeply that capacity for connecting. And so it's a little bit like in weight training, if you're picking up weights, it's easy to do it with a, a lighter weight. And you can feel like you're doing a lot more of it. Wow, I lifted it up 50 times. Wow, that's great. Because it's closer to what you're already able to do. Whereas if you came to lift something that was a lot heavier than you could lift, or you could only just lift it once or twice, then you need to rest for a little while, that might actually ultimately serve in deepening that particular capacity over time. And so that's my view with regard to mantra, that generally for most people, there's a greater deepening, quieting, stilling of the heart and mind that takes place through using something that's both organically arising, so not requiring some intentionality, some activity to say it or to think it internally, and that also actually takes one out of the, the realm of the language, the verbal function of the mind, the thinking conceptual territory, and that there's a, although it's challenging for us, there's something actually profoundly rich and ultimately freeing in finding our capacity to be present without the support of the languaging, without that particular support. And yet it can work and serve as a support if it's understood as such. So it's uh, not to say don't do it, at least I wouldn't say that, but be aware of its limitations. And and it can also have the effect of keeping one more in one's head, essentially. So it's very effective when one is doing it, but because it's using the language and the languaging function, it tends to take one a little more 
up into that conceptual realm. And perhaps to contrast that also to um, the practice of noting, where one is naming the experience. And so again, using the languaging function of the mind, which is helpful, because again, it brings the languaging function, the thinking function, the conceiving function that tends to take us easily away from the immediate experience, brings it into contact with and harnesses it to the actual felt immediacy of what's happening by naming, oh, in-breath, out-breath, or coolness, warmth, hearing, that kind of experience. Again, it's useful, it helps keep the mind more closely tethered, we could say, but it has the limitation that the mind may stay a little more in the conceptual and we may start to be attending more to the language itself rather than the underlying experience. And so in terms of insight practice, in terms of the development of insight, the use of mantra isn't really directed towards that generally. It's towards calm and quieting of the mind. In terms of insight, it's the immediacy of direct experience that is the, the basis for the arising of understanding. And in that way we can also see it is the basis for the arising of, of freedom that comes through understanding. So I hope that's a, a useful comment on the practice of mantra. With any practice, key thing is, if you're interested to explore it, and the basic sense is it's not harmful, and I would say that's the case of, of mantra practice, look and see what happens for you when you do it. See if it's actually useful. And if it is, you may wish to employ it. But um, to bear in mind, as I said, with regard to that, that there may be limitations. I've uh, sometimes thought and often said, in fact, that if one was to wheel a very large gong in here and bang it every few seconds through a meditation, everyone would be very present, very mindful. If it was a pleasant enough sounding bell, it would also be probably quite peace-inducing and calming. But it wouldn't necessarily lead to any deeper degree of... Um, of collectedness of the mind because the mind can connect with it at the level it's already at when we begin. It's like we don't need to develop samadhi to watch a two-hour movie without really getting distracted or thinking too much this is boring. It's just a bunch of colours on a screen and a few sounds. There's nothing going on really but watch it for hours. I do. Now and then. And you say, oh, okay, it doesn't require the mind to get more subtle. So taking away such practices we find ourselves more in contact with the, uh, the vagaries of the mind, the challenges of what it is to really meet the experience directly. And I, for myself, again, I think this is where the greatest benefit and richness is uh, found in, in meditation practice. So another question here. In samadhi practice, this is the practice of samatha, of calm, in sama, samadhi is a Pali word, um, in samadhi practice, am finding the intensity of the first, so I am, I'm assuming, am finding the intensity of the first stage too great to stay in for too long and have to come out having a rest and then going back in. Is there a more skillful way of developing this or do I continue in this way? 
So, again, I think this would probably be something one could go a little further into in, a, in, a, in an interview where there was an opportunity to ask a few more questions. Um, so you might want to pick that one up with one of us in an interview if you can. If there's a sense of intensity, I think it might be useful to just look a little bit at what that is for you and why that's hard for you um, to, to be present with. I'm not saying there's something wrong in what you're describing. Um, it can be sometimes that when we're entering into territory that's unfamiliar, there are elements to it which make it hard for us to sustain our um, exploration. It sounds like you're consciously and voluntarily choosing to stop practicing, to have a break, in terms of that particular focus. Um, and that may be what you need to do in the situation. I would be asking a few questions in terms of the degree of um, effort that's being applied in your practice, whether there's any um, forcing or investment you can notice in trying to enter or to sustain the, um, the practice. And, and when you're saying first stage, I'm assuming you're talking about, um, though we can never be quite sure sometimes with the experiences, whether it's the, the first stage of um, what we call access concentration, where the mind really settles and becomes quite steady um, and undistracted, or in terms of the absorptions, the jhanas, where the the attention, the heart, the mind are actually fully absorbed into and settled within the mind-body energy field, and that, and um, in that, to, to yeah, to be aware if there's any forcing, any any trying that's going on, it'd be particularly useful to look at the quality of relaxation around your practice, and towards or to be reflecting on whether there's any. Any kind of holding to the experience itself, any sense of, of getting it, got it, had it, want it, just noticing what's going on. That's kind of, it's not unusual, it's not that one has to judge it if it's there, but it's really important to be aware of it and to see if any kind of um, craving or um, pushing is starting to flavour the way you're engaging in the practice. The other thing to do with intensity is to always just notice whether in some way we're contracting or holding in the field of experience. This, this applies to pretty much any realm of practice or experience in which we encounter intensity. There can be a unconscious or maybe semi-conscious and habitual response to somehow try and contain intensity. We can fear we can feel threatened by or fear intensity, the strength of experience, as if it might overwhelm us. And uh, many of us, most of us probably, if not all of us, will have had experiences when we were young and very young of being overwhelmed by intense experiences that we had no comprehension of and no reliability to handle. And that sense of being overwhelmed equates to, um, to being annihilated. So it's pretty scary. Um, when we're really small. And so we can carry then with us a, a way of responding to intensity that can enjoy it up to a certain degree because it might feel like it's fun, like really intense, enjoyable experiences. We can, we can get something from that. But at a certain point, easy leads to a sense of trying to control the experience, trying to contain it, trying to manage it. 
And the way we will do that, most of us, and again, with anything I say, check yourself to see, is this what's happening for me? Don't assume because I said it, that's what you're doing. But check and see if there's any way in which you're tightening, contracting, holding, if the, in, in terms of uh, <clears throat> in, any way you notice the body tightening, or there's a sense of just even any slight or mild fear, anxiety around about needing to manage the experience. Because what they will tend to do is when we, when we try and hold or contract around an experience, we compress the space in which the energy that we're experiencing as intense is able to move or be known. And what's often really helpful is to just consciously orient towards a sense of expansion. It's a sense of giving room to, giving space to, and uh, I often find the phrase useful, just how much space does this need? Or could I give this as much space as it needs? Whatever the experience is, the, um, particularly um, in the realm of uh, samatha, the experiences, although they're very much centered in the body energy consciousness, at least the, um, the initial um, absorptions, they're not necessarily limited to the physical structure of the body. And if we try, because we tend to be identified with or tend to think of the field we're working in as the physical shape and structure, we tend to hold the attention within the boundaries of the physical body, often then the sense of intensity or pressure that might arise is, is hard to manage. And what I find helpful and useful is to just move the attention into the space around the body and maybe to some considerable degree beyond the body to see if that allows the amount of energy that's present to be contained in a way that doesn't create pressure. Useful while doing that to also have the attention quite um, grounded in the way the body is in contact with the earth. So that this, the physicality of the body is in the center of that field, but the field of attention is not limited to just the body. Am I speaking too quickly? Please tell me if I am anyone, because I could just notice there was quite a lot I could say about this one, and uh, maybe I speed up. So... Likewise, if I'm, I'm probably, if you can hear, if you can't hear me, but if you need me to slow down, do say. I can notice I get excited sometimes. Usually too late. The noticing, anyway, is too late. So, um, yeah, so just in kind of terms of making sense of that, when you have a certain amount of energy that creates intensity, it's because it's not in enough space compress the space it becomes more intense and we tend to do so to control it but if we give it space although that might be initially a little scary because we might be afraid of what happens if it gets bigger or becomes more intense we might fear in fact that energy in more space means there's less pressure pressure is a relationship between energy and space and we feel it as too much pressure or intense when it um, is somewhat compressed. If it's not so much that, but more about the strength of the sensations that are being felt, just notice also whether there's some degree of um, fear, aversion or distress arising around the sensations, the experience itself. That might also be uh, a component of what's happening. And other times it's just a case of practicing with getting to know the territory. Being able to breathe out into the into the felt experience as one gets to know it. Often the sense of intensity diminishes and in what begins off feeling very 
strong actually becomes less so over time. So again, I would suggest, I, I don't know who you are that's written this, but um, you might want to talk some more with one of the teachers about that, one of us. Um, but I hope that's useful. Actually, maybe I'll just uh, pause from the written and uh, see. There was at least one person who had a question. Is it one you would like to ask now? If I, please. Could you say a little bit more about where does truthfulness become avoidance? I, I, I may understand it, but I'm not quite sure if I do. In social relations with other people, yeah. how you, where does truthfulness become your own perception? We're not a yeah. culture that encourages truthfulness. Ah, yeah, yes. Yes, well, uh, in, in that, that sense, sense, yes. Well, in that sense, um, we might often feel that there's a cultural um, norm that suggests we not be truthful, we be polite instead. Um, and uh, certainly, as a as a New Zealander having to learn to live in England uh, and thinking when I arrived here a quarter of a century ago that I spoke the same language, it was a very interesting and occasionally bumpy journey of learning that oh we're using the same words but we're not speaking the same language. And in every culture, there are the, their own version of how you do that what we call communication socially, and that the Buddha I think was really skillful in regard to this and. Um, I might have touched on this a little bit last week when I spoke about um, Sakya as a, as a parami. And truthfulness, the, when the Buddha spoke about it in terms of skillful behavior, it was, also, it was always to put it in the light of what is true and useful. And that there's no injunction or obligation within uh, taking the precept of, uh, of wise speech to always say the things you know to be true. Um, nor is there any injunction in terms of the, the path factor, in terms of the eightfold path the, uh, of why speech, to, again, to always say what you believe to be true. So I think there's room there to be truthful with yourself in what I believe is true here and be, um, I think, maybe appropriate to the circumstance and the individuals involved as to what I speak of that. In the end, when speaking, one is seeking for communication. And to say something that might seem true to us, but which the other person can't receive in the way we mean it, means that we're not actually going to communicate what we want to communicate. And sometimes it's appropriate to hold back. I mean, we regularly give the advice at the end of a retreat to not go home and, you know, bestow upon our, our partners, relatives, family and loved ones all the insights we've had about them on our retreat. You know, because they may not be in a place where they can receive them. We might be accurate. Of course, there's a risk that we might not be entirely so. But um, that sense of, well, look, this is how it is. And sometimes that sense of truthfulness is used as a, an excuse for 
imposing one's views upon others. Now, I'm just telling the truth as I see it. And so the truthfulness of acknowledging the limitation of our view and our perspective, that our perception is, con is conditioned, that our views and conclusions are inherently conditioned and um, not always so, not always borne out. And when one has that sense of that, then I think there's a, a greater degree of humility and kind of, I'm trying to think of the word, that, 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 that there's less a sense of certainty in one's truths. The certainties we have available to us are very, 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 very small. And remembering that is actually very helpful when we seek to speak about truth or we seek to share what we believe to be true. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question. Please feel free to say, ask a little more if there's more in that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just the, the process of being truthful with ourselves is a great place for doing that work and just seeing, okay, where and what is useful in how I relate to myself, even telling myself about my own limitations. If I do it in a way that feels um, judgmental or critical, it doesn't really help us. It doesn't really serve us to transform. Likewise, in telling other people the truth about them or even the truth about the world insofar as certain behaviours may be unskillful, but um, we actually need to be in a place of relationship, of connection and of trust with another person before they can hear that from us. And that's a lot more work than just telling them how it is. Well, I find it to be. Yeah. Thank you. So were there any more questions at this point or...? Please don't feel under any pressure, but you're very welcome if there's something there. I'll continue with the, the written. So it seems to me, and quoting Anilo, who I'm guessing that's uh, his book on the Salipatana Sutta, um, that, in quotes, the breath naturally becomes shorter and finer with continued contemplation owing to increasing mental and physical calmness, unquote. So someone's quoting uh, a sort of something that somebody has written, and this is quite an authoritative someone, um, uh, has written in a book about what happens in our experience. And yet their experience is, I don't have this experience, never had it. Not during relaxation at the end of a yoga session, not during meditation, I'm assuming. And it's like... It's interesting, isn't it, when someone says, this is what happens, but my experience tells me, actually, it doesn't seem to happen that way. Is it perhaps nonetheless more an individual question? Thank you. So, yes, actually, the truth is whenever anyone says that this always happens, or if they say it in a way that suggests it should happen this way, and your experience doesn't appear that way, I would always advise you to trust your experience the assumption that I'm somehow doing it wrong or my experience is somehow wrong isn't particularly helpful. The breath often does become shorter and finer as the mind and body, mental and physical calmness, deepens. But we don't always necessarily subjectively experience it as such. 
Does that make sense? It's probably the case that your breath, who you are, I'm not sure. Again, sorry if I've, I should remember you from a previous meeting. Um, I'm rubbish with names as it happens. That's something that's quite reliable. Um, but if you have been practicing here for, you know, 10 days, three and a half weeks, I'm pretty certain that if we got you onto some scientific instruments before you started and now, you would find that your, um, your breath has actually become somewhat finer. Now, it may not necessarily become shorter, but finer. I would imagine it's very likely. I'm sure there are also exceptions to that. That's about the only certainty there is, is the certainty of exceptions to any certainties. Um, but it might sometimes be that we just don't notice that it's become that way because we're just um, we're not sort of comparing it that much, or we have some idea of what shorter and finer means that's different than our experience. But either way, it's either not happening for you like that, or it is in a way that it's not what stands out to you. So you wouldn't say I notice it as such. Either way, with that, yeah, it's individual in so far as. Sometimes it happens this way and sometimes not. I think, did I use the phrase already? It was um, Shunryu Suzuki's, um, you know, the summation of his, his many years of wonderful teaching was these three words. He said, not always so. This is the whole of the Dharma. Not always so. Conditionality, uncertainty, unpredictability. Not always so. So... Analio's um, observation about the breath becoming shorter and finer. Not always so. So another question. I always fix myself a duration for a sitting session. So have a set amount of time you're going to sit, I'm understanding. It will never be shorter. So you don't end, I'm understanding you don't end your session before then. But when I don't manage to be present at the object of my meditation, a certain satisfying proportion of the time, does it make sense to continue my sitting? Or not at all? Um, so what I think I'm understanding is that there's a question about should I keep going beyond the time I've decided to sit? Like if I'm sitting there for, I've decided I'm going to sit for 45 minutes and... In that 45 minutes, if my mind was really calm and quiet and clear, I'd probably just keep going. I wouldn't get up at the end of it. But when it's not, when I feel a bit distracted or a bit sort of, you know, mind moving around quite a lot, as does happen on occasion, some of you will have probably noticed, I guess. Yeah? Um, it does happen, yeah. Even after weeks of months of this practice, it does happen. Gosh. Um, does it make sense to continue? So... It might be more obviously a reason for, continue, for continuing if it feels that the mind is really quiet and we sometimes think, you know, I'm getting somewhere, we're going somewhere, it's good, and we have this idea, my meditation is good, I'll keep doing it, and I'll have some more of this, or get somewhere further with it. Um, I'm not saying that's necessarily what's happening for, for you in terms of who's written here. Um, but what I can say is that I've noticed before in sittings, and particularly in the context of a longer retreat, that sometimes the mind doesn't settle down for quite a while. And then it does. And I've certainly had sittings where I might have been noticing the mind 
more distracted, less settled, a bit more energy, agitation or um, discursive thought arising over periods of 20, 30, 40 minutes or more. And yet continuing to sit and stay with that, then at some point actually the mind really settling. So you can't really measure exactly what's happening by the way it's manifesting in the content of experience. And um, it might be that if you're able to sit longer, if your body's relatively at ease, even though the mind isn't that steady, it would be worth, and it could be quite useful and interesting, to explore, well, what happens if I do stay here? Even though I'm not having some great, profound, or sublime meditative experience, but actually there's enough steadiness. And I'm guessing that's what's in the question, that you could choose to continue, but you're mostly wondering if it's worth it. I would try it and see if there's something of value in that. As an exploration, the, uh, the ability for the mind to stay on the object of meditation is not the measure of our practice. It is a mark of the degree of samatha, of calm, that's present in the consciousness at that time. Yeah, that's true. But it's not a measure in itself of the what is actually maybe the, the deeper level of development of that quality of calm because we can be actually have a lot of development of samatha and still be quite agitated or restless for periods within the practice and it's certainly not a basis for measuring the degree of um, deepening uh, potential for insight and understanding that might be taking place and you know sometimes we can have a sitting where it feels like we were hardly present at all and yet in the next walking or the next sitting, suddenly we're completely there. And it tends to suggest that in the previous sitting, maybe something was just being processed or digested, or just that's where we were, but it's not like it's a fixed place. So there's a little bit of an assumption of continuity in the question that if it's going like this, then if I keep sitting here, it's going to continue going like this, would there be any point? Does that make sense? You follow that. So... I think I already said this, but there we are. Try it and see what happens. Stay a bit longer. It's almost always useful to spend a bit of time exploring the places that we might not at first be drawn to go to. Including just staying right where you are for just a little bit longer sometimes. And see what happens. Even if there's no good reason at all for doing it. One of the greatest, some of the richest territory in practice is when we're doing it and there's no great reason at all for doing it right here and now in this place. But we do it anyway. Because we're interested in something more than just what the experience is like. So does it make sense to continue? Yeah, some of the time. And... Uh, what makes sense to our mind isn't always the basis for answering the questions, I guess. The good questions, all, actually I should have said that before, earlier too. So this is a two-part question. When I apply mindfulness on the Vedana, the Vedanas, are, this is a complicated question, are always Vedanas of mostly physical sensations, unpleasant a headache, in quotes, pleasant, sunlight on my face, etc. Is this a correct way of viewing exp 
experiencing or am I reconstructing my experience? Thank you. Okay, so um, Vedana is sometimes a little, I could say, tricky or subtle to really get what that is in the process and that it's not just, it's often experienced as the physical pleasure displeasure or unpleasant or neutrality of experience that we can feel at a bodily level but there is actually also a a quality of unpleasantness that isn't just in the physical that we can notice when we hear a really harsh sound now when we hear a harsh sound it's unpleasant you know if it's if it's something harsh to us it can be really unpleasant I was trying out a new alarm clock app on my phone earlier today. And it was, you know, a really unpleasant sound. Now, with that, you can feel then the body reacts to that. But when one is quiet and the body doesn't, one's not reacting to the unpleasantness, actually the sound itself has that quality or is associated with the sense of unpleasantness, at least initially. And there are different views about this, but as I understand it, that quality of unpleasantness is an attribute of the experience in the sense store, whether sound, sight, smell, taste, touch, or thought. Now it may have a correlating or um, consequent experience in the body that's felt as pleasant, unpleasant in the physiology, in the sensory, in the touch. And that might be what we tend to mostly associate it with. Um, But that is, as I understand it, what one is experiencing. And so in terms of reconstructing or viewing experience, um, to notice there is both this and that. There's the contact, which is the sense of the sense door being stimulated, pasa, pasa. And then there's vedana, the quality, it's pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, vedana. And then... If we're not mindful, if we're not present, there's the, the movement of craving to take hold of, to get rid of, or disinterested in the neutral. Tanha. And actually just to see, okay, that's what happens. So it's not about making Vedana into something any more than it's about making contact into something. It's noticing what's the mechanism, what's the process that's taking place. When we start to form conclusions about those components of, of experience that say it's is this or it's not, it's a something or it's not, we're kind of in the territory of the way the mind always wants to make things either something or nothing, to either construct or deconstruct. Whereas actually it's, that's not what's most important there. It's to see that when we're not mindful of the pleasant, unpleasant, neutral quality, we react with grasping, resistance, disinterest. And that when we're mindful of it, we have the possibility to actually just soften, to release, to let go of that urge, to not be carried by that urge. And in that, actually to free the chitta, to free the heart-mind from being conditioned by that quality of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. And in that freeing, we free ourselves from the world.
And when we think about it, reflect upon it, we may have a sense that it's constructing a sense of somethingness as a way of being able to talk about it or to reflect on it. Sure, we might do that. But ultimately it's the process that we're interested in rather than defining or negating the thingness of what we're talking about. And following on from that, maybe I should have read this before, um, but my question concerned the order of question mark, question mark, question mark, appearance or experience. Question mark. So I'm just, just trying to give you a sense of the question is questioning here in awareness. So the order of appearance and awareness. First sensation and then second, it's Vedana. As in the property of the experience. So the sensation in itself doesn't have the property of Vedana. It's... Um, the quality of Vedana arises consequence on contact. When we talk about it in casual language, we say, yeah, the sensation has this property. But, or the experience has this property. But actually what we notice when we pay attention is we're noticing there's contact and then there's this. And they seem to come together. And you can say, well, the sensation is the real thing and the Vedana is its property, but in some ways that doesn't really get you very far, I don't think. Um, it's that this arises together. When there is this, this happens. And this is part of the, the way the Buddha taught it, and as I understand it, that when the conditions are there for contact, so there's the sense bases that have arisen and the, um, the sensory world comes into contact with them, there will be contact and there will be this quality of, of Vedana, of feeling tone, pleasant unpleasant neutral that happens inevitably and that's in a way part of the the karmic consequence of 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 birth essentially that we have these sense sensory apparatus and we're in contact with the world or at least that's how it seems to be when we're looking at it in terms of the um we could say the ordinary day-to-day -day language of 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 self and other when we actually are right there in the experience and there's not so much me and this happening to me, it's just, it's just this, there's contact, there's sensation, there's feeling tone. And then the potential to either see it as such and not react or the urge to crave, to grasp, craving, clinging and becoming and taking birth again. So, in that sense, is it Vedana without an object, it goes on to say, I've just seen the rest of the question, or is it always the Vedana of something? And again, we're here in the territory of, well, what do we mean by something? Because in one sense we can talk about somethings, and in another sense there aren't somethings. There's no such thing. It's not that it is or isn't with a something but it can be experienced as Vedana. And in that, that's where we actually free ourselves from the conditioned and entangling pattern that becomes um, very clear in that place, the urge to grasp or to push away. So without having to maybe 
totally satisfactorily answer the question in a yes-no manner. What's important there is to have a sense of how to respond in that point. Just the noticing, okay, there's the Vedana. The sense of, is this of the something or somehow not of a something, is a little bit of a distraction there. Trying to get the analytical conceptual model to be pinned down or nailed precisely to the flow of experience doesn't always serve in the practice. If you find it useful, great. In that context, I would suggest, for now, leave the question. You know, hopefully something of what I said was useful. Maybe it wasn't. And if that's okay, if that's the case, that's how it was this time. But see what it's like for you to just be in that place and suspend the need to locate or to know the answer to this question. See, can I be just there and not need to know, is it a something? Is it Vedana of something? Is it Vedana with something? Is it Vedana and there's no something? Just what's this? What's this here? It would probably be the subject of a whole talk to try and take it any further with that. Um, so, I think I might finish that question there. And perhaps I just check. Um, it's, it's just after quarter to five, so this is when I was going to finish. But if anyone has a question that's arisen in what I've been speaking about just now, or that you've recognised as there for you, feel free to to let me know. Again, no need for that, but you're very welcome. Okay, good. So let's just sit a couple of minutes quietly together and we'll finish. So may our practice here together continue to deepen, to broaden, and to unfold for our own well-being and for the welfare of all beings, for all of life.
So again, thank you for your practice. Thank you for your questions and your presence here. And please continue.